Hello and welcome back to the Finding Your Feet podcast, a podcast show dedicated to helping you get closer to your true authentic self by helping you find your feet in life. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you're doing well. We are really excited today because we've got an amazing guest joining us, Owen O'Kane, who is a psychotherapist. He's got 25 years of experience of being a therapist. And now he is a Sunday Times bestselling author. He's got two books out. His first one, 10 to Zen, his most recent one, 10 times happier and he's writing a new book that is coming well it's coming out in the spring but he's announcing what it is in the next few weeks but this book 10 times happier you all need to read it mm. it is incredible it's such a concise practical book whatever you will be struggling with that's holding you back from happiness and I, I think you don't even need to be like an unhappy person or feel like mm. you've got poor mental health um for this book to be applicable to you like it's there's something in it there's nuggets of wisdom in it for like everyone it's like tools for life Mm. like it's so practical and Owen the way he writes it he's he's such a compassionate guy and the way he writes it is in such a compassionate way so even though it's like a a self-help book on how to be happy from a therapist it's still a very touching book and it's definitely one of the best books I've read all year so we were so honoured to have him on the show to have a conversation with him all about being happy and what holds us back from happiness and so many things yeah I really loved it it's almost as if he has accumulated all this knowledge over his career and then he's put it into a book in a really practical and simple way and Mm. like each tip just lands so much like when we were reading it we were like obsessed with it and we're like oh my god like it really changed our lives just reading the book so to actually have the pleasure to speak to him was an absolute honor it really was he's such a nice guy and an absolute delight to talk to Mm. but we will shut up now and we will let you (laughs) listen to the conversation with owen So today we are joined by Owen O'Kane. He's a Sunday Times bestseller of the amazing book, 10 Times Happier, which me and Abby recently read. And it was literally, we read so many self-development books and this book was one of the most practical self-development books I've ever read. I, I urge all of our listeners to read it because I just think wherever you are in your life, there's something in that book that you can get help from and it was just so practical and there was it it was such like a, it was so compassionately written as well and um like just yeah it was just amazing so we're really really happy that you've come on the show and we're so excited mm. to speak to you today um but just to welcome you on could you introduce yourself and just so the listeners can get to know like who you are a little bit of the background about your career and you had like a really interesting start to life like you didn't grow up in the easiest environment and I think that's really impacted who you are today so we'd love to hear about your story yeah of course uh, well thank you that's a really lovely warm introduction and I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you found the book helpful and useful and that was kind of one of the the thoughts for me really as I sat down to write the book because I really wanted you know both of my books to help people I wanted to reach people and give something that was common sense, practical. Um, so I'm a psychotherapist by profession. That's, that's what I do for a job. And uh, I was a clinical, I was a mental health clinical lead for the NHS. That was my last clinical job. And I did that up until about three years ago. And then my first book, 10 to Zen, was published. And it became a Sunday Times bestseller, which was incredible. It translated into 15 languages, which was one of the biggest shocks of my life because when you sit down to write a book, you have no idea. It was the first time I'd done it. And I had an idea about what I wanted 10 to Zen to be, but I had no idea where it was going to go or what was going to happen with the book. And of course, it was received really well and proved to be helpful. And that led to 10 Times Happier, which came out, I think, about a year and a half ago now. And thankfully, it was also received really well. And people fed back that it was helpful and it was useful mm. and they were able to use the material. So I'm working on my third book at the moment. It will be out next spring, and I think we're going to announce that in the next couple of weeks, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, um, nice. a really a tough book to write, but I'm really excited about that book coming out because I put heart and soul into it. So I'm really happy about that. So yeah, my background has been split. Really, half of my career was in health, and half was in psychology. And the first half, I really specialised in. Most of my career was in palliative care, and that was working with people who were dying. And then when I was doing that work, I realized that 
you know, kind of medical training wasn't enough. Often people, when they're dying and they're struggling, they need it more than injections and medication. There was a real component of psychological distress that then led me on to do a master's in psychotherapy. And I love that work. I'm fascinated by our minds, how we operate, how we tick, how we behave. And so my career then evolved into, you know, working with people who were struggling with anxiety, depression, trauma, addictions and and I love that work and that's kind of really what I've been doing so like 25 25 years of my career have been in either frontline physical or mental health then the books happened and that changed everything really so my career has moved off in a different direction so I do the books I do a lot of talks I do a lot of press and media stuff um I work on EastEnders helping them um oh, wow. yeah it's that's really amazing cool. I help them with their mental health storylines and guide on Oh, you know, wow. What, what direction to take them. So my week's quite split, really. If I'm not writing, I still see clients. So I have a clinical then. So I, I still work with clients. I do a lot of workshops for big corporate organizations. And obviously a lot of press and media around mental health, current issues, and, of course, podcasts, talking mm. to people like you guys and, you know, supporting platforms and really trying to do what we're all trying to do, which is to get a very yeah. message out there. That's what really. I grew up in Northern Ireland. Um, you're in a period called the Troubles. Um, so you guys are probably too young to remember this, but there was a really hideous <laughs> period of sectarian violence, really in the kind of late sixties, seventies, and eighties between Protestants mm-hmm. and Catholics. And sadly, a lot of people lost their lives. And um, it was a tough, tough period, really. And it was a tough place to grow up. And I grew up there during that period, so I understand a lot about anxiety and trauma. And in fact, I didn't really, really, mm. I didn't realize the impact on me personally until I left. And of mm. course, that informs my work and how I operate clinically. Because I often think as professionals, it's very easy to just go on platforms with our titles and our experience and what we do. But I think sometimes you have to be brave enough to share your own story mm-hmm. and what it's been like to understand human struggle. Because I think ultimately, at the end of the day, that's, that's what matters because we're all human, we all struggle. And I think it's the importance of being able to to share that with each other. And, of course, the other thing that's probably important to mention is um, I grew up in Ireland at a, at a time when it was really difficult to come out as gay. So I'm really interested in the whole concept of shame. Mm-hmm. That's feeling enough because a lot of people, I think, do have a sense of not feeling enough or feeling like that they're the underdog or they're not good enough. So I'm really interested in that in my work. So... To, to cut a very long story short, I suppose my work is informed by my own story, my own experiences, both working in mainline physical health, particularly in palliative care, and obviously my psychology training. Um, I try and compile it all together in terms of, okay, in my experience, what makes a better life? What helps most people? And I try and put that together into my work and my boots. Probably talking too much, but that, that's me. Oh, no. No, it's amazing. That's a broad overview of my life. I find it very inspiring. You do so much great work. And you just mentioned there about how um, you reflect on your own life and you use that in your work, especially looking at shame. And we discussed quite a lot about how your childhood and stuff like that can really impact who you are today. I'd love to know your thoughts on like how crucial it is to really look back on our childhood um to reflect on our own mental health today and how important it is to kind of like work through traumas or shame because we were discussing the other day actually about like shame in the body like what that does to you I'd love to know more of your thoughts on that yeah it's a it's a great question because I think many people in their formative years do experience some degree of trauma or shame it doesn't happen to everyone, but unfortunately it happens to lots of us. And I think in those years, if you think of how your brain is hardwired, if someone is telling you that you're not good enough or that you're stupid or that you're ugly or that you're queer or whatever the context may be, if you're having labels thrown at you and you're being judged, the human brain in our formative years doesn't really know what to do with that information. It absorbs all of this. And if you think of it, I describe it like throwing muck at someone. And if mm. someone has muck thrown at them for a long period of time, eventually it begins to stick. And I think in our formative years, we don't know what's right and what's wrong. And if people are being judged and shamed, then I think there's a danger that they start to absorb that. And of course, when we get into adult years, we suddenly realise well, a lot of this stuff wasn't true. And often people shame other people or they bully other people from a place of fear 
you know, I think often people often do that because they're frightened and they just transfer it on to someone else. But I think the key thing is that when you get into adult life, it's the, the important distinction between actually you're not that. So, for example, if I were to believe some of what I was told around my sexuality, I was sinful, I was dirty, I was bad, I was wrong. Now, I know that I'm none of those things, but if I hadn't have stopped, stepped back out of my life and luckily in my 20s got therapy to realise oh, that I'm none of those things. These were just labels that were thrown at me and they were quite shaming labels, but it was being able to stand back from them and think, actually, these don't belong to me. So I guess really I think good therapy is about recognising what muck has been thrown at us. Mm. And I guess really good therapy is about actually this doesn't belong to me, so it's almost like stripping it off. Mm. I'm not I'm not ugly. I'm not worthless. I'm not you know, I'm not nobody. And you begin to almost unpeel all of that stuff and put it away because it doesn't belong to you. It was mm. just stuff that was given to you. But it doesn't mean that it's a truth. It doesn't mean that it's a fact. And I think that is one of the most important things about recognition. When someone has a sense of not feeling enough or feeling that they're they're weak or they're vulnerable or they're nothing, you know, all of the labels we hear all of the time, it's about actually, no, that's not who you are. It's just an experience that you've had, but it doesn't define who you are as a human being. So that's the one thing I'd say to people is, you know, because you're feeling something, that doesn't mean it's who you are. It's a symptom yeah. of your experiences, but it doesn't define you. And the more you can work on that and the more you can see that for what it is. I mean, I can go out and stage sometimes and if I'm doing a big event, you know, sometimes, you know, almost like this imposter will come in, you know, if I've got 500 mm-hmm. people in front of me and I'm about to give a talk, I might hear this voice come in and saying, who the hell are you to give this talk? You know, mm-hmm. Now, that would be a voice from my past coming in you know, from some of the bullying and shaming that went on. But the great thing and the powerful thing is when you can recognize that coming in and see it for what it is, then you can segregate it and say, mm. okay, I recognize that and I move forward. And so that, that that's the power really, I think, in recognizing your childhood, your experiences and being able to segregate from it. Yeah, it's so true what you were saying, because when we're growing up, if someone does, you know, bully you, make comments, you don't know what is right and wrong, what's rational and what's not. And you can hold on to those beliefs for your like entire adult life. And it can really hold you back if you never take that time to really like address what are these belief systems that you have that hold you back. But I loved in your book how much you shared about your story and about how when you first went to therapy, because I think it just really helps like when you're reading it to like really connect to you to see, you know, your background and where you've come from. And then obviously you bring all these incredible tools in each chapter, um, addressing like all these different ways to obviously become happy. It just it, it was such a nice it's such a nice read rather than just like, okay, here's your problem, here's how to fix it. You like really yeah. connected to you in in the book book um but obviously you've been a psychotherapist for su- such a long time such a uh, yeah long part of your career you will have treated so many people what um do you think obviously in your book you go through all the different reasons why you might be unhappy and how to fix it but have you noticed like one common theme across um or your patients that is like the one thing that holds them back from being happy or have you noticed in different generations of, of eight, like different ages of people you've treated that there's different things from different generations that hold people back or? I love this question. I think it's a brilliant question. And the reason it's a, it's a brilliant question is that I would say probably 99.9% of people I meet in therapy have, regardless of what they come with, whether it's struggling with boozing too much or childhood trauma, anxiety, depression, the one thing they will all have in common is that they don't treat themselves well. Mm-hmm. They have this inner critical voice where they self-attack, self-sabotage, and I think that is common right across the board. And for me, therapeutically, that is probably one of the most important things. Once you learn how to relate to yourself in a different way, once you learn, we often hear about self-compassion and I think self-compassion as a phrase can be taken as quite fluffy, particularly with men. Mm-hmm. I say to men about self-compassion, they kind of look at you and think, oh, this is a bit woo-woo or a bit, a bit fluffy. And actually, it's if you think of it really, really practically, you know, often we would never, ever speak to another human being the way we speak to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, if, you know, when you sit down with most people and you hear what goes on in their inner dialogue, you're rubbish, you're not good enough, you're shit, look at that other person, you idiot. I mean, that's the tone 
a voice that can go on in people's minds. And in my view, once you help people to recognize that and once you help them reframe it and just learn them to treat themselves with more decency, then that's where you break through. I think everything else, if I'm being really honest, is a complete waste of time. You can teach every technique in the planet. You can use every theory in the planet. You can dress it up with fluffy psychological language. You can make it sound as grandiose as you want. But if someone doesn't know how to be compassionate to themselves, you're wasting your time. And for Mm -hmm. me, therapeutically, that is one of the most important things. Once you crack that, you're halfway there. Because everything can change. Because then you're not living with an eternal enemy. It's attacking and criticizing and judging all the time. So once once you break through that, then I think all of the other stuff, because then when anxiety kicks off, that part of you can go to your anxiety and say, it's all right, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look after you. This is all right. We've got this. Or if you're feeling down and demotivated or a bit lost, that part of you can then come out and say, it's okay. We'll work through this. Let's work through it together. So it, it's kind of finding that internal voice where you become your own ally and you become your own mm. this is very cliche but it is like really becoming your own best friend yeah that's wholeheartedly and when mm. you when you kind of when you find that something powerful happens i think yeah well we always like say that to our listeners like the power of of like most of our listeners are, are girls so um like the power of practicing and self-love we need to, and we get their boyfriends to listen as well yeah trust me and i can say this as a guy we need this as much as yeah. girls there's no differentiation here and i mm-hmm. think you know any girls listen to the podcast if you've got a boyfriend who's struggling do get him to listen to this here because mm-hmm. you know the human mind is a human mind you know mm-hmm. our brains sometimes don't function in the way we need them to and there can mm-hmm. be something really powerful about recognizing that but more importantly learning how to work with it yeah we um yeah we we talk a lot about self-love and and trying to become your own best friend but what we preach a lot of for people to go to therapy as well because the the sponsor of our podcast is a is a therapy company and me and abby have both in our younger years i invested in therapy because um you know we've had we've had the struggles that everybody has like anxiety things like that and we've had like so much huge life-changing benefits from taking that time to go and be with a therapist and work through things but for someone to start practicing self-compassion do you think it starts in the therapy room or do you think there's things that they can be doing um already at home maybe if like you know for financial reasons they can't get themselves to therapy or anything like that if that's the number one thing that holds people back from being happy how can they start to be more self-compassionate today again it's a great question i mean of course look at I'm a therapist and I advocate therapy. I think most people could benefit with therapy. Yeah. You know, because, you know, most of our lives are, are complicated. Um, sometimes our brain, our brains, like any other part of the body, can become depleted and worn, worn down and don't function well. So, of course, learning the skills to try and navigate that and manage that better is a powerfully helpful thing to do. So I think, you know, we need to stop talking about therapy as something that only some people need. I think therapy can almost be like having a personal trainer. We could all do with one, <laughs> you know, uh, or if we don't have the luxury of getting to a therapist, we can certainly start living with the techniques that good therapy teaches. And I think if you can't get to a therapist, and I would often say getting to the right therapist is really important as well. You know, choosing a therapist that's right for you and choosing a therapy that's right for you, not just any therapy. It has to be, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy. The evidence for that around anxiety and trauma is pretty decent. So you'd want, I would say, if somebody's really struggling with anxiety or panic disorder, a good cognitive behavioral therapist is probably a sensible option because, you know, that's where the evidence is for treating anxiety disorders. But so thinking about that really carefully, but outside of therapy, of course, you know, you don't need to wait to start therapy. You you can start doing that today. And I think there are two things really is one recognition, because sometimes that critical saboteur type voice is so second nature that it just becomes almost embedded in who you are. So people just see it as normal. And I think it's the importance of being able to stand back and firstly recognize, God, that's really harsh. God, that is really tough. And the recognition is then, okay, is there another way? Can can I replace that with something a little bit different? And that's not necessarily just language. It's also that internal tone towards yourself. 
you know, it's just kind of almost like you and I, if we see another human being struggling, we're not going to go up to him and say, oh, come on, just get your act together. Or we wouldn't go up and say to him, oh, you're going to be okay. We wouldn't say that in a really stern, non-empathic tone. You would say it with meaning. And I think it's almost teaching people, look, if you can work on the recognition and second, then just work on, okay, what would a small shift in your attitude towards yourself be like? Then something quite magical happens because I think then the stress immediately begins to come down because the person is relating to themselves with a bit more compassion and a bit more ease. And suddenly, you know, it's all, it is like magic. Suddenly it feels easier because they haven't got the judgment, the shaming, the criticism, the harshness. And the minute you strip that away, then of course the distress, you know, think of it like a barometer, it's immediately going to come down. And I think then people have to, you know, I could speak about this until the cows come home. But once you begin to experience that and you begin to then start trying this out in your everyday life and you think, God, that did help. Like, you know, I would say to anybody listening today, if you're anxious at the moment or you've been struggling with anxiety, just try this one simple thing. Just try this approach with your anxiety. Don't judge it. Don't try and push it away. Don't try and get rid of it. Just sit down with your anxiety and say, it's all right, I'm with you. I'm not going to run away from you. This is all okay. And just notice immediately what happens to your anxiety. It will just start to feel a bit less than it did beforehand. So I think when you then begin to experience that, you realize, God, there is something really important in this message. And of course, like anything, the more you do it, then what you do is you hardwire new changes in your neural pathway. So basically what you do is you begin to rewire how the brain functions and operates and that's exactly what you want to be doing you want to break these patterns you want to set up new neural pathway responses so that you get more healthier responses so it's not just an action when i talk about self-compassion or any of these concepts they're not just fluffy concepts about oh just like yourself love yourself you're doing something really powerful with re you kind of really reprogramming your brain to work in a better way for you so it, you know, and the neuroscience is really strong in this. The evidence is really clear. As you will have heard throughout this episode, Owen has been stressing the importance of therapy and how everyone could do with a little bit of it. It's just like getting a personal trainer for your mind. And our podcast is sponsored by an online therapy company called BetterHelp. And they are available for clients all over the world. So wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, you can get a therapy service for whatever issue you have, whatever mental health problem you feel like you're struggling with. They have a huge range of expertise. They've got somebody on their platform that can help you. Yeah, exactly. As Owen explains in this episode, I feel like therapy is more about just allowing someone to hold your hands and letting you face the things that you don't want to face. Like that's probably one of the main benefits which I got out of therapy. And just remember that you are all worth it. And I think one of the main things that does stand in the way of people getting therapy is obviously the financial investment. So we are really proud to be sponsored by BetterHelp as they do offer therapy at that more affordable price. Not only are they more affordable, they are also giving the Finding Your Feet podcast listeners a 10% discount off your entire first month of therapy with BetterHelp. So to get this discount, all you need to do is go to the link betterhelp.com forward slash finding your feet. That's betterhelp.com forward slash finding your feet. We have left the link in the show notes. Just go through there and the discount is automatically applied to your account. Once you fill out the questionnaire, you'll be set up with a therapist that is perfectly aligned with you in just two days and you can start your therapy journey. And if you have any questions at all about therapy or better help, just come and chat to us on Instagram at Finding Your Feet Podcast. Let's get back into the episode with Owen. I think I really love that answer because we do talk a lot, like you said about that, about like recognizing your thoughts and understanding that you are not your thoughts. And I think it's something like implementing that self-compassion and noticing your thoughts is so simple, but also like a daily practice, like a daily dedication to doing it. And like, we both spend time doing that, you know, like just like writing out your thoughts, just to understand that they're not you and you can just get them out of your head onto the piece of paper and just leave them there. I've started doing that in quite a lot of mornings, but yeah, I, I do really love that answer. You um you mentioned at the start as well that you worked um in end of life care. Yeah. And I think yeah. like there's something about um end of life care. You know, like when you see things maybe on social media and it's like, oh, stories of someone that was like dying yeah. or the lessons. And people it people's ears always pick up, they're like, Oh my gosh, they they want to hear what people have to say at the end of their life, but often 
we we forget we disregard the inner life we just yeah, leave yeah. it to the back of our mind and don't think like what are we going to want to think we'll get to the end of our life so we would love to know your thoughts what is like the main things you learn from working with people that were coming to the end of their their life sorry i mean it's a, it, it, it's a huge question but it's an important one because it covered mm. lots of areas so i used to work with people i worked in different areas i worked in the community i worked in general hospitals where people were dying and I worked in hospices. So my experience was cut across three areas really, but you were, you were dealing with people who were facing a terminal diagnosis, but not only dealing with them, you were dealing with the family as well and helping them in some ways come to terms with what, what had happened. And sometimes that could be an 18 year old guy who had just mm. been given an awful diagnosis and had weeks to live, or it could be someone in their 70s or 80s. And, you know, it it just was, was right across the board. And what really struck me about it more than anything was that sometimes I would go in, you know, like everybody else, you know, I'd go into work one day and I'd be late and I'd be stuck in traffic and the dog had been sick before I went out and I'd be trying to get new, you know, I'm trying to do a new mortgage, you know, all of the everyday life stuff and and I do remember one day, actually, I was working in a hospice at the time and I had quite a bit going on. My dog was purely one day and I was trying to change my mortgage to a different product. And I was flying over to see my dad that weekend. You know, when you just have a whole tick list of lots of, and I was really hassled. Mm. And I remember getting into work and that day on that particular shift, four people died on the shift on that particular mm. day on the unit I was working in. And of course, it was all varying degrees of human distress going on. And I can remember on the way home from that shift, I was driving back and I was driving through a really busy town centre and there were quite a few bars on the road and everyone was out on the drink and they were singing and dancing on the street. It was, you know, it was summertime. And and I remember driving home and it was almost a bit surreal because my day had been quite intense in work, watching these people die, dealing with their families. And then I drove out and like what the life was going on you know, everyone was just getting on with their life and drinking and partying. And they had no idea that all of these other things were going on. But the interesting thing for me was I remember driving into work that day really hassled. So much mm. things to do. Oh, my God, I've got to do this, got to do that. And I was a bit overwhelmed. And I remember when I drove home from work that day, I'd forgotten about all of it. Mm. Because none of it mattered, really. And I think that is one of the key things about working in end-of-life care is you're dealing with people who very quickly have to face their own mortality. So, you know, I never, and I think I talk about this in the book. I don't know if it was this book or that. I sometimes lose track where I wrote about stuff because <laughs> the books are accumulating up. But I never, ever really heard people talking about how much money they earned mm-hmm. or what their achievements were or what their titles were. You would often hear people talking about the people in their lives, mm-hmm. holidays they had, the experiences they had, and I think in the book somewhere I talk about, you know, and, and this is really, really true. When you go to visit a graveyard, you never on a tombstone see such and such, you know, earned five million in their lifetime, <laughs> own two properties, da, 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 da. You never see that. It's always about beloved husband, beloved mother, beloved, you know, whatever it is. It's often about the relationships and about the person. And I think working in that area really taught me about simplicity above everything, about not overcomplicating their lives and about not taking things too seriously. I mean, people think working in palliative care, end-of-life care is quite heavy, and actually it wasn't. My God, the job was sometimes really good fun at times because you got to know people. People were still, you know, end-of-life care isn't about working with the dying. It's about working with people, helping them to live as fully as they can do while they're in the process of dying. I think that applies to all of us because if you look at it really practically, we're all getting older. We're all dying in mm. some ways. If you think of it practically. So it's about how can you help someone live as full a life as they possibly can do in the remaining time. That's what what, what good care is about. So of course it teaches you about perspective. It teaches you about simplicity. It teaches you about what matters in your life. You know what are the values that you're living by. So many of us live by values that don't work for us. You know. Why am I following rules that don't work for me? Why am I living a life that doesn't feel right for me? Why am I half existing or just going through the motions? Why would I live like that? So I think that is one of the powerful things about, you know, that line of work. It wasn't gloomy. It wasn't miserable. It was a wake-up call every day about, you know, living fully, embracing your life. Um, yeah. 
surrounding yourself with the people that matter. Don't mm. you know? I say this really, really strongly. So many of us, we sometimes surround ourselves with relationships that are toxic and unhealthy. Don't. Mm. If somebody is, if somebody is not energizing your life and bringing something to it, and it's not a give and take relationship, why would you pour all of that energy into something that's destructive or unhelpful? Or someone who depletes your energy but gives nothing back. And I think you learn about that as well, about the importance of good relationships and surrounding yourself with good people. I mean, I could go on forever <laughs> about the lessons, but I just think it's just about, you know, it's about really stopping and thinking, you, you know, whatever is going on in your life today, it is a, it's a temporary situation. Um, even if it feels difficult and it's about, okay, how can you find ways of making today work? How can you find ways of... You know, sometimes searching for the good in your day. Mm. You know? Or can you also stop and think about what part am I playing in this? Because we, we, this is what 10 times happier is about. We get in the way of our own happiness, don't we? We create these blocks and obstructions and we don't even know we're doing it. So mm. it's always actually a question, what part am I playing in all of this? Because, you know, we all know it's very easy when we're going through a tough time in life to kind of think, oh, it's because of my childhood or it's because he did that or it's because she did that or it's because I'm not where I want to be. You know, we could come up with a hundred reasons why we're not happy. But actually, we very often we've got zero control over the external events. You know, look at the last 18 months. None of us had any real control over that. But what we do have control over is how we respond to life. I think that is one of the key questions and one of the key learnings in palliative care. We have a real choice in how we respond, what decisions we make, what actions we take in our life. And I think when that coin drops and we realise that, then suddenly we're empowered. Mm-hmm. But whereas if we're in the other zone where we're waiting for things to happen or it will be better when I've got the job or it will be better when I get the boyfriend or the girlfriend or whatever the context might be, no, it won't. Because if you don't make the internal changes and hold responsibility for your own happiness, then there will always be something to be, you'll always be waiting on something to mm-hmm. fulfill you. And actually it's, you know, there's a great saying, that, you know, the way out is to go in. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that, you know, mm-hmm. you know the, the power is within you really. Sorry, you're going to have to edit this. I'm talking to you. But hey. No, Aww. you're saying so many amazing things. You, um, yeah, you, you like summarized in the book, like 10, 10 lessons that you learned from, from working with people that have been dying. And that, that, those two pages really moved me. Mm-hmm. And, um, since I read that, like, that's one of the main things that really stuck with me from your book. And I, and it sounds a bit morbid, but I've been like having that thought pop into my head thinking, like you aren't going to live forever like you will die one day like it's, your life is you know like yet yeah, life can be very long but like it is a is a limited amount of time and um yeah from that that section of your book it really did change my mindset to remind myself daily of that fact but not in a depressing way in an in an empowering way and thinking i want to live life to the fullest and then when i do have you know problems come up you have problems come up every day through work and so many different things i just think it's going to work out because you said in that one of the lessons was everything always works itself out and i was like it, it does and um and and yeah and to just like let it go and just think well what is good about today oh, i get to work oh, with my best friend i get to do this and it really helps just drop so much of that stress and just have that bigger like bigger picture view of what's really going on so you can just enjoy life rather than getting sucked into like unnecessary stress because you can't avoid problems they're going to be part of your life but it's about how you look at it and that's one of the things that I really got from your book so uh thank you for sharing that and like everything you just said that it was some amazing advice I think something I would add to that as well is um that you know, I, I do believe I'm doing a talk in, in, in January and the theme around this thing I'm doing is called Life Finds a Way. And I do believe that life life does find a way. Now, that doesn't mean that it will find the way you want or the way I want. Mm. I think this is mm. one of the things that I, I really discover getting older. Sometimes we have ideas and thoughts and notions about how we would like it to be and how it should work out. And then suddenly, of course, it doesn't. And then you're like, oh, bloody hell, why did I, I wanted that to be much better i i wanted a different outcome but i kind of think it really is about trusting the process as long as you're showing up in your life as long as you're doing your best and as long as you're living a life that is 
as true and as authentic as it can be for you. I think it's just about then just just allow the, the rest to be. Mm-hmm. Even the disappointment and the bad moments and the difficult moments and the setbacks, it doesn't mean they may feel wrong in the moment and they may feel devastating in the moment, but it doesn't mean that it's a negative experience. It could be actually transformational. And I think, you know, what we all do is I think we all latch on to the, the good feelings. We all want success, achievement. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be the best. So we, we latch on to all of these experiences and emotions like they're the thing that we should aspire to. Now, that's going to sound ironic from somebody who's written a book on happiness. But as you know from reading, it's not a fluffy book on happiness. It's no, about actually no, it's not. equal value in the times when you're struggling and going through a tough time. The times when you are feeling a bit lost or lonely or things are difficult, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that these emotions are there for a reason. And it could be that they're there to get you back to your point of balance and equilibrium. Or they're there to try and move you forward or to help Mm -hmm. you make changes that are right for you. And I think it's about we have to learn to value both. You know, the good and the bad, the positive and the negative. We can work with all of them. And I think in our culture, I mean, the go on Instagram or Facebook, I mean, everything's happy, happy, isn't it? Glossy, glossy. Mm. Everyone having a wonderful time. Well, of course, you and I know they're not. You know, <laughs> sometimes people have shit time, but they don't go on Instagram and say it. You know, mm. everyone, everyone's mm. living their best life on Instagram. But actually, it's they're not, and we're not, because no matter who we are, there are ups and downs. And I think it's often about, okay, what, what can this teach me at the moment? This is a difficult period. It's not an easy period. Okay, what lesson may there be in here for me? Mm. What's it telling me? So when my, if anxiety's through the roof, okay, what's that telling me? Is it reminding me that I need to slow down? Is it reminding me that my perspective has gone way off? Is it reminding me that my values are not true? Is it reminding me that I'm in a situation that's not good for me? So you can take the emotion and think, okay, there's, it's it's trying to communicate with me if I will listen to it. But what most people do is they, they, they try and think, oh, this doesn't feel good, it's negative, I don't like it. So they push it away or they try and dampen it. And I think, well, then what you're doing is you're pushing away something very, very valuable. Because if you start mm-hmm. to work with the emotions and the experiences and let them teach you, then suddenly they all become part of one. Mm-hmm. I can't emphasize how important that is, that, you know, it can't feel good all the time and it can't feel amazing all the mm-hmm. time. It can't feel brilliant all the time because if it did, then there's no room to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to make room for all these other things. It's taken yeah. me a long time in my life to realize that, but I think it's right. But I'm much older than you guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. Like in the tough times, you feel so uncomfortable, but once you kind of get through it, you you can look back and see that there was massive lessons for you in that difficult period. And it amounted to you becoming this better version of yourself and huge growth comes off it. And I think what you were saying about, you know, just sitting with the anxiety, sitting with the difficult emotions that that's like half the battle. I think we just try and run away from them because we're scared of them or what is in there? What does this mean? I don't want to feel like this. I always want to feel happy and da da. But when you just sit with it, um, you know, it subsides quicker and there's always something in there to teach you and um no matter how horrible the feeling is and I, I loved in your book as well in your last chapter about like the t- coping in tough times and you just kind of give people that strength that like you are going to get through whatever it is that you're going through and that life will come back around full circle and you will find happiness again because that is just the cycle of life it's up and down up and down there's different points but you know you be strong enough to get through it. So I think when people remind themselves of that, then they'll go towards the anxiety or their depression and just think, okay, what's going on here? Let's look at this. And like yeah. you said, self-compassion and um, yeah. sit with it. Yeah, and even about, I mean, I'm a bit, you know, I've been talking about this a lot recently in terms of, you know, we've got a lot of labels around at the moment around anxiety disorders and depressive disorders and, you know, mm. trauma-related disorder. And, and if I'm being honest, and I'm saying this as a professional, I mean, sometimes a diagnosis can be really helpful because, mm-hmm. you know, so, sometimes someone might need a diagnosis to get the right treatment. So I'm not poo-pooing diagnosis in themselves. But <laughs> there's another part of me thinks, you know, it is actually human sometimes to be anxious and it's human sometimes to feel low. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have to get much better at normalizing the fact that as a human being, there there may be periods in your life when you're more an- anxious than you would normally be. There may be periods in your life than 
you're lower than you would normally be. That doesn't mean that you're disordered. Mm-hmm. I talked about this in an Instagram video the other day. That's There's nothing disordered about that. That's called being human. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. more and more and more we have to get much better to kind of thinking all of these things don't make us disordered. And I think often around the hashtag mental health, we need to watch this as well. There is nothing, you know, mental health is part of our humanity. We don't use the hashtag physical health. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or um, hashtag physical health. We, 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 we wouldn't think of using it because we just we just accept that sometimes yeah. we're feeling a bit unwell or having a few problems that we need to go on. We accept that that's part of humanity and that sometimes things don't work the way they need to. It's identical with our minds. Sometimes mm-hmm. that, that organ and our mind becomes tired, it becomes depleted, it doesn't function the way we need it to, um, and it needs tweaking, it needs adjustment, it needs resetting, it needs us to to, to make a few changes along the way. And that's not a, that, for me, that's not a disorder. Mm-hmm. That is, that's humanity. That is that is just debris and actually doing something. So when it's when when distress comes in, or suddenly we're feeling overloaded, or we're feeling panicked, or that's just an SOS from the brain saying, "Okay, right, <laughs> back to center, back to balance." Mm-hmm. It's really almost like an alarm bell going off. So it's actually doing you a favor, even though it feels distressing. It's the brain working with you. So I think yeah. we need to just get much much better. At kind of thinking, you know, something. Mm. we're all going to talk to it yeah yeah we're i love that gonna... so much yeah and, and that is the truth though isn't it i mean do you, i don't mm. know anybody who doesn't struggle i i, no, I don't know no, yeah. in life personally or professionally it just doesn't struggle at times and i think mm-hmm. that's what we have to get better at that this yeah. is not some out there you know oh my god this is terrible no actually this is part of your humanity mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing I think that's beautiful as well, especially what you're saying about your anxiety is almost. <laughs> Sorry, we've got a wasp on our microphone. And oh, it's no. oh, dear. Me. <laughs> <laughs> just... oh, God. It's like slightly yeah. distracting. <laughs> we'll just put it out the window. You should now do a question about dealing with the unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> when a wasp goes in. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry about that. We've got like I don't know why. I, I yeah, think there must wasp. be a wasp nest in the roof or something, and where yeah. in the room we're in because well, this random wasp just appear. You cope much better than I would have done if that had happened to me in a podcast. A wasp had come in. That would have been it. My, my sleep credibility would have been gone. <laughs> what happened to that calm therapist? <laughs> he ran out of the room. <laughs> no I love so much how you answered that especially about your anxiety almost doing you a favor and trying to help you because I think with the lack of education that we actually get on like what you said of what anxiety is it can be so scary and we can go against it we forget that it's actually just trying to keep us safe like the primal part of us is trying to keep us safe and alert you like you said is trying to do us a favor so yeah. I think switching that like you said and instead of being scared thinking how can I sit with this? What is this trying to teach me? Yeah. It's just so powerful because you're literally flipping it on its head. You're like, you can almost welcome in the anxiety and say, thank you. I understand that you're here, but how can I use this? What is this trying to teach me? Rather than just being so scared and paralyzing ourselves. It's a brilliant way of thinking about it or almost think about it is, you know, it's giving you an exact, very often it gives an exaggerated response. So sometimes, like, like for example, mm-hmm. anxiety there was a useful thing. The wasp comes onto the microphone. <laughs> so your anxiety kicked in a bit and you said, I've got a wasp on my microphone. I probably don't want to get stung in the mouth while I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> so, Anxiety kicked in and says, okay, better get rid of this wasp, otherwise we're not going to be able to continue with this interview. So actually that action of kind of getting up, dealing with the situation, your anxiety works for you. Now, of course, what anxiety will often do is it will create an exaggerated response. And because often they become habitual responses, they just play it over and over and over again. It's just like a pre-recorded, preset, particularly if you've grown up with habits or cultures or families where there's been a lot of anxiety around. So what it does sometimes, it, it feels like, oh, okay, I need to, okay, she's about to meet someone new. Okay, I bet her, I better keep her safe. So I will create worry so that she doesn't make a fool out of herself or so that she doesn't say something stupid or do the wrong thing. So it just creates an exaggerated response, thinking it's helping you out. 
but actually all it is is just an exaggerated response. It's not needed. And it's about almost seeing the anxiety as, okay, I know you're trying to help me, but it's all right. I don't need it. It's, I, I, I've got this. We can manage this. And, of course, mm-hmm. every time you respond to your anxiety that way, it then soon gets a message, okay, well, she doesn't respond to that anymore. So that's, again, we come back to neural pathways. You almost begin to short-circuit that pattern. Because let's put it this way. Say, for example, Abby, you had a fear of speaking in public. This is hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Say you did. <laughs> and then you go on to see it, and your anxiety then kicked in, saying, oh, my God, you're not going to be able to speak. You're going to dry up. Your heart's beating. You can't breathe. Everyone's going to laugh at me. Da, 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 da. If every time you go onto your stage, you then kind of think, okay, oh my God, it's happening again. And you just keep following the same pattern. Then eventually it will start to feel a bit overwhelming. So, of course, every time you repeat that pattern, your anxiety will then kind of say, okay, well, she doesn't object to this. Um, So I must be right to keep creating these worry thoughts and these responses. So I'll do it again. Mm -hmm. Your job is to almost come in and short circuit that belief so when it comes up again and you know actually nothing bad's going to happen you're going to do the talk and you're going to be fine you've got to come in and you've got to start working your inside and say i know why you're here and i get it and you think it would be safer to run off a stage and hide in a corner at the minute because it's less of a threat short term but actually that's not going to be good for me and my work and what i'm doing so thank you for rocking up for me but we're, we're going to be fine we're going to manage it you immediately then short circuit pattern and of course, the more you short circuit the pattern, then it gets a message and it kind of thinks, oh, that doesn't seem to work in the same way anymore. Or maybe I don't need to do that as much anymore. So I will create a different response. So then you get a much more measured response. So this is what I talk about, you know, being active, being very proactive in managing all of this stuff. It's not just about talking. It's also about, you know, how, how you self-talk, how you relate to your anxiety or your emotions, but also the actions you take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much a doing, you know, therapy mm-hmm. and all of this work. It's never, never, never just about thinking thoughts. It mm-hmm. all of this is about it's action based, you know. Yeah, it, it has to be action based. Yeah, I love the uh, I love that the information you shared there about like this breaking the patterns in your mm-hmm. brain, the neural pathways. We speak quite a lot about, um, well, the things that we know about neuroscience in terms of that sense, because like even when it comes to like relating to anxiety and stuff, when you uh, and even just limiting beliefs and when you want to reprogram them, like understanding that little bit of neuroscience about neuroplasticity and that actually, you know, is possible. And this is kind of how it I think it really helps people give them a little bit more because we don't need to know everything about how all yeah. the psychological things work. But I feel like that area of research that's you know quite commonly spoken about now is actually really helpful for people to understand because I think sometimes people think, oh, how is this going to work? It's not going to work. I've always thought like this. But then when you know, actually know it's possible to, to rewire your brain and here's the science, then people stick with it and they're like, okay, I'll, I'll try it and I'll do it for the length of time needed until it's actually going to work. Absolutely. It was one of the things I talked about a lot in the first book in, in 10 to 10 because I'm talking a lot about anxiety in that first book. And if you think about the, the, the only, I think for me, the, the most important things to understand about the functioning of the human brain is you've kind of got two parts that you really need to know about. So if you think of your amygdala, which is your threat center, and it, you know, basically it's like a, it's like an alarm system that goes off. And very often with anxiety, what you've got is you've got a highly activated amygdala. So what we know is that if you were to go through an MRI scan when you're highly anxious, instead of it being like a size of a pea, it's going to look like, you know, size of a small orange or something you know it, it's just it's it's overactivated and it, it's it's you know it's just not helpful now the difficulty is you've got another part of the brain which is your prefrontal cortex um and that kind of helps you be more rational make decisions be clearer um and the difficulty is when you've got an overactivated amygdala it's very very difficult for your prefrontal cortex to function it's kind of almost like for one to work effectively you need to almost switch the other off or at least dampen it down. And I think when, when people are talking about managing their anxiety, if somebody's in a really heightened, anxious state, and you say to them, oh, just take a breath, or just think happy thoughts, or just reframe the thought, wasting your time. And the reason you're wasting your time is because when they're in a highly active, anxious state, when their amygdala is overactivated, trying to rationalize an anxious brain when it's in highly active threat mode 
isn't going to work. So your key priority is, okay, my only action at the moment is to deactivate this. Mm-hmm. And you do that obviously by grounding and stopping and using the breath. And, you know, that's the, the key priority is when you learn to deactivate your threat systems and then get to that point where it feels, okay, now I can breathe. I feel grounded. That's the point then when you're able to activate your more rational self and make decisions. But often people get really freaked when they're trying to think happy thoughts in the middle of an anxiety attack. Think, no, 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 no. Your first priority is just to, let's just turn the volume down. Mm-hmm. And then when we get the volume down, then we'll be able to get a bit of clarity. But don't try and do it all at once. And I think this is often the mistake I see people make. They just try and sort it all out at one time. Yeah. Want to get rid of anxiety, want to think better, want to feel better, want to have my life sorted. No, 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 it's okay. Your only step is just, you know, what would the next best step be for me? So if you're overwhelmed today, okay, the next best step might be, okay, let's bring it down a few notches. Mm. That's enough. Yeah. Then when you bring it down a few notches, okay, let's take another step. What might that look like instead of trying to manage everything at one time? And I think mm-hmm. there's something amazingly powerful about that when you learn that okay what's the next what would one next step be that's mm-hmm. going to be helpful enough yeah and you may yeah. be one step today mm-hmm. that's more than enough yeah I absolutely love that. It's it's so practical and mm-hmm. um, just yeah, just gives people hope and, and and you do that. You just do that. What's the one best step I can do today? And just focus on that and get through the day. And then and then before you know it, like a month has passed, two months have passed, and you've gone from being maybe sky high anxiety to oh, I actually feel like myself again. And because it's in so subtle and gradual, you're like oh, I, I'm back. And and at the time when you had sky high anxiety, you thought. Am I going to feel like this forever? And it's no, yeah. you will calm down. But um, yeah, I love that. And I love that you shared there about like the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, because I think when you understand that, then if you are someone who suffers with anxiety attacks, then you can understand, okay, this is what's going on for me right now. And, and, and I know how to manage it because even the actual sensation of having an anxiety attack is just so overwhelming for people anyway. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. So that kind and of information is amazing. Especially with panic attacks, this is really, really important because for anybody who's had panic attacks, you know, in the middle of a panic attack, you think it's the worst thing. You know, you think it's awful. You're going to die. Something terrible is going to happen. Oh, my God. The, the awfulness of panic attacks would be overwhelming. But what I say to every single client I work with who's got panic of any description is, has anything bad or awful ever happened to you to date? Now, and most people who arrive in therapy have probably had hundreds of panic attacks by this stage. And they just kind of look at me blankly and think, okay, have you ever lost control? Have you ever died? Have you ever had a heart attack? Has something terrible ever happened? And every single time they say no. I say, well, brilliant, what a great place to start because you're telling me that you've probably had 200 panic attacks in your life. Okay, and in those 200 occasions, nothing bad has ever happened. So that's really good evidence to start with, because what we know is in those 200 occasions, none of the catastrophes that your mind has created have ever happened. Mm -hmm. So what we know evidentially is using prefrontal cortex, rational thinking, what we know is, okay, the likelihood is this is just exaggerated fear and worry. Mm -hmm. That's what we need to work on. We just need to worry, work on the exaggeration. We need to work on that overactive system and we just need to level it all out. It's no Mm -hmm. more complicated than that. Mm, I love that so much I feel like people listening will really really benefit from the knowledge that you shared there because like you say it's just really practical to understand what is going on in your mind especially with that like kind of the embodiment and just getting back into your body before you try and work through it I really love that we um we really wanted to ask you a little bit about obviously what we've all just been through this collective pandemic like Mm. the ash shock of it for people that maybe because I know I've certainly noticed this even within my friends that may have struggled a little bit with their mental health in the past. And then with this pandemic hitting, a lot of people really suffer because obviously no one really knew what was going on. And I was saying to Grace that, um, I don't know if you know Tara Swart, who is a neuroscientist, she was explaining that in the Second World War, we all had these like collective really bad nightmares. And that has happened as well in this pandemic, but it hadn't happened since the Second World War because that's how much stress and worry we were under. So have you noticed like a difference within your work, people struggling more with mental health, or maybe for someone that was hit with their own mental health, their own anxiety within the pandemic and is still struggling to get back to their normal self, what would your advice be? 
I talked about it a lot. Actually, I coined a phrase a couple of months ago called post-pandemic stress disorder, which mm-hmm. isn't PTSD, but I talked about it. And some of the big press, I think the, the Financial Times picked up on it, actually, and did a, they're interested, Google it. They did a huge piece on it. And then mm-hmm. somebody in America picked up on it because at the time there were a couple of other therapists saying, oh, this is rubbish and you can't compare this to PTSD. Now, I wasn't saying it was PTSD. What I was saying is that I believe that there will be a secondary trauma-like response to this that we won't see at the time because with trauma you never really see the true impact at the time you see it months later mm-hmm. and i do believe that for many people you know when you think of the practicalities of it you know we weren't expecting this to happen we couldn't travel many of us were locked at home people were getting ill we were seeing horrific headlines every day our routines had changed people were losing people people couldn't say goodbye to loved ones it wasn't just one thing people were losing their jobs People were losing their businesses. There was a collective sea of awfulness going on for a lot of people. Now, you cannot, it would be impossible, not because we were seeing it every day on news, mm-hmm. on television, radio. We were, you know, we were absorbed in this stuff every day. It would almost be abnormal not to be impacted by that at some level. And I think to a lesser or greater degree, a lot of people were traumatized by the fact that, oh, my God, the world I live in is now different. Mm-hmm. Everything that was safe and familiar to me has now changed. So I've been talking about normalizing the fact that, okay, to be struggling or not feeling great after this year, I worry more about people who have almost been, well, well what, what was it? It's, it's fine. Because I think, well, have you been living somewhere else for the last 18 yeah. months? <laughs> not the impact, but at some level would worry me more because I would think then, well, is that about disconnection or dissociation in some way? So I, what I would say is for anybody listening, if you have noticed struggle, if you've noticed that you're still not feeling great, waves of anxiety coming, just not feeling completely balanced, I think that's absolutely fine. Mm. Because we're still readjusting, we're still coming to terms with it. There's still mm. residual headlines. There's still updates every day on the number of new cases and how many people have died. So I kind of think even though it feels like we're out of the epicenter of the the volcano over the last 18 months, we're still going to get aftershock. I think um, Abby used to phrase aftershock there, which is a at the beginning, I think you said that. It's a great way of phrasing it. I still think there are going to be a few aftershocks. And I still think we're all kind of still a bit, okay, well, what does this mean? And it's going to play out for some people in different ways. Some people are going to struggle reintegrating back to normal life, whatever that looks like. Some people are going to struggle with trying to restart again and build their business or, you know, get back to university, whatever the context may be. So I think it's about, it's all right. And, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you're experiencing at the moment is is probably very normal under the context of what we've all just been through over the last 18 months. What I would say is that if you get to a point where you're struggling to function on a daily basis, where every day just feels harder than it needs to be, or you're feeling hopeless or you're feeling completely overwhelmed, more than normal then that's the time i would say look just go and have a chat to your gp and get a mm-hmm. bit of help and mm-hmm. i think i would say that broadly generally you know sometimes we can cope independently sometimes talks workshops self-help books can be mega useful but there are times you think actually it's just not cutting it. i need a bit more that's the time to to, to have the courage and just to, to chat to your professional, chat to your GP and say, look, I'm finding this a bit difficult because often treatments can be mega effective, whether that be talking therapy. Sometimes people need medication on a short-term basis. It's not for everyone, but some people do. And, you know, what we know from the research is that about 30% of people might need short-term medication interventions to get them through difficult episodes. There's nothing wrong with that. If you had an infection, you wouldn't hesitate going to see a GP for antibiotics. So it's not a, I, I try to move away from judging, medicate, mm-hmm. don't medicate. I think it's it, it's an individual thing, but it's just about having the courage to go and speak to someone who's got the experience, who's got the know-how, somebody with proper experience in training, not just, you know, someone who's done a weekend training, go to somebody who's well qualified and knows what they're doing and just talk through with them what's going on for you because more than often they will have, some solution that's going to help get you back on track again. Um, most things we can deal with, you know, mm-hmm. things can be treated, things can improve. You do not need, and I can't emphasize this enough, you do not need to wake up feeling awful every day. Mm-hmm. And if you are waking up feeling awful every day, then you can, you can, and you should get help with that. Mm-hmm. Because that's not a way to live. 
yeah that's not that's not living fully Mm -hmm. um thank you so much for that answer i think it will bring a lot of comfort to a lot of people because i think Mm -hmm. um so many people still felt weird coming out of this even though you know we're not in lockdown we don't have restrictions so um that will probably bring a lot of peace to our listeners so thank you but um we could talk to you all day um and there's so many more things i feel like i'm in a club yeah this has been an amazing conversation funny isn't it when you're doing a podcast but you forget you're doing a podcast think oh we could be on a podcast it's been lovely it's been really lovely talking to you guys yeah we've um, enjoyed it so mm. much it's been really really valuable advice so thank you so much for yeah. talking to us yeah. and sharing all your uh, knowledge and expertise with our listeners and um i'm sure they're all going to want to come and read your books and get involved with you and um and, yeah, and your instagram you share so many good things on your instagram yeah, the videos yeah. i hope so i mean instagram's hilarious mm. for me I mean, this is a true story when i first met when my first book came out and stuff and it was all a bit of a shock to the system um my agent said to me um about getting Instagram and stuff and you need to get, because I hadn't done any of these platforms. Yeah. I, to be honest, I didn't know what Instagram was. TikTok was on another level. You could have been talking about <laughs> a clock in a room. I didn't know what it was. And one day I was talk, talking to my manager and she said something about a hashtag or something. And I looked at her and I said, what do you mean by a hashtag? And she looked at me and she said, you, is that a serious question? <laughs> Yeah, I said, what's all this hashtag? And, and she said, shit, we've got work to do in you, haven't you? And I said, I haven't done any of this stuff. I don't know what a bloody hashtag is or, you know, tagging people and stuff. So I started on Instagram. I mean, literally, I set up the profile. I ain't got a clue. It didn't make like, oh, what, what is this? How do I put a video on? What do I do? I had zero knowledge. I mean, so this is, you know, this is like a proper old person here talking about how to put it on Instagram. And, you know, it's been incredible, actually, because I've been learning new stuff. But, you know, I think it's about 24, 25,000 people on there. And I started out with zero knowledge of how to operate that platform. And it's incredible, actually, mm. to, to think, okay, those people are on there. And I think the videos do help. Yeah, definitely. Support from them. And I think it's amazing, actually, because that, that was a big shock for me. It's one thing writing the book, but when you start using social media in a way that you've never mm. done before with zero knowledge or experience of how that world works. I'm sure if I applied myself a bit more, to be quite honest, and spent more time on there, it would be great to see how that could grow. But, you know, maybe in time I will use that platform a bit more because mm. you know, they're, they're a great way of reaching people. And, you know, yeah. you know, keep up the great work you're doing. I think it's incredible to see, you know, people like yourselves who are reaching out and doing something really incredibly valuable because, you know, you're, you're touching and you're reaching people who are struggling. Mm. you guys understand human struggle and i think there is something you know don't under underestimate how powerful the work is that you're doing and how many lives that you're touching by by dedicating your time to this here so you know keep keep it up it's amazing what you're doing oh thank you so much much. um so where where can everybody find you what's your username on instagram like where can they get your books and the books are on amazon and all the outlets. so the first one is called 10 to zen and the second one as you know is 10 times happier the third one we're going to announce in the next couple of weeks it will be out in the spring um instagram is instagram's my main platform it's um on okay and 10 um you can find me on there um yep yeah, and i i kind of rock up and do events and stuff and i tend to throw mm-hmm. stuff on my instagram particularly if i've done a talk or i'm doing a podcast and stuff i tend to to share it on there so any yeah. i'm doing there's only access to it yeah yeah it's very valuable because i think once i actually just sat there and just looked for your videos on instagram and i learned so much and i was like it's so nice to just have that at your fingertips just to learn so much i think yeah i try and cover different themes depending on what's going mm. on and you know and you know sometimes i just follow my instinct and think oh i feel like talking mm. about whatever today and i'll throw that on and then it's just incredible then sometimes people will send a message and or they'll message you privately and say that the the video or the content reach them or touch them at a particular point. And I think this is the thing about all of these platforms and the responsibility we all have really is sometimes one word or one sentence can be enough mm-hmm. to make a significant change in people's lives. And I've really learned that in my work o- over the years. It's not about complicating things. It's not about being better. It's not about, you know, I think that there's, there's a danger in the world of self-help actually that it just gets over commercialized or yeah. over complicated or it becomes mm-hmm. 
people start competing in the arena. And I just kind of think, you know, we've all got a job to do. Sometimes what we say will be relevant and helpful. And I think it's that remembering that it could be, you say a word or a sentence that touches one person and that's fine. It's enough. And I think that mm. when I do videos, if one person likes a video and it's helped them, my job is done. Yeah. Mm. It's not about counting likes or comments or how many people it reach. Because I think that's a dangerous game. You start getting mm. into measuring and comparing and all that stuff. It's just about, okay, did this reach and touch another human being? If it did, amazing. Did it reach lots of people? Well, that's incredible. That's, that's a bonus. And I think for all of us, when we do that work, if we approach our work that way, um, you just don't know where impact is going to land and you don't even know if it's going to land at the time you're doing something i've done stuff and like it's been a year later when mm-hmm. it's led to other stuff that's been much more significant but at the time mm-hmm. um, it didn't really go anywhere um you just don't know so i just kind of think for me anyway i can only speak for myself you can only just show up and do what you do best authentically and be truthful and honest and give what you can on the day and that has to be enough mm-hmm Oh, amazing advice. So yeah. Well, thank you so much um, for coming on the show. I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's, so, so it's an honour to come on, so thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Wow, I feel like there were so many amazing nuggets of wisdom within that episode and it's definitely one that I'm just going to listen to again and again because he explains everything in such a practical way but just like really life-changing advice. Mm, I wouldn't mind him being my therapist, you know? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking through like the whole episode. He's so like calming yeah. and, you know, step by step, you can get there. Yeah, mm. it just makes you feel like it, it's going to be okay. It's really going to be okay. Yeah, he's just a really nice, really nice vibe. Really enjoyed speaking to him. And I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. And if you want to pick up some of his books, you can just get them anywhere, Amazon, all the usual places. But we really recommend that you do try them out because he's very, very good at writing books. Yeah, yeah, life-changing books. If you are in need of any tools to support you on your own mental health and self-development journey, head to our website, findingyourfeetpodcast.com, and you can download a range of meditations and affirmation playlists that have been recorded and planned by me and Abby with really nice relaxing music behind them so that you can start calming down your anxiety or start rewiring your beliefs about not being enough with the you know self-love and self-belief affirmation playlist. They are all a really affordable price of $3.99 each and you can download them straight to your phone, your computer or your devices and you get lifelong access. Yeah, affirmations and meditations are something that really did transform our lives, especially just putting them on in the morning, aligning you ready for the day. So if you do want to check out the affirmations, maybe it could be something like self-belief, maybe you've gotten like a new job adventure you're going for, there'll be something there for you. So go and head to our website and shop them now. The link's in the show notes. And after listening to this episode, if you are feeling inspired and encouraged that therapy is actually the right thing for you to do now, but you're not sure where to turn to get access to therapy, then don't forget to head to betterhelp.com forward slash find your feet, where you can begin your therapy journey with our 10% discount. But thank you so much for listening, everyone. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.